0: worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers in flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated all Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with your own flatness of your and, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens of the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, you also will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And are not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray together before we begin. Father, it is our strong desire that we might hear your voice in the pages of Scripture, that we might hear you speak to us through the words which were written almost 2,000 years ago under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. know that it is not in dreams or in visions or in still small voices that you speak to us, your servants, through your word. And we pray that you would make us now attentive to those things. Help us to discern, help us to hear with ears that would honor and glorify you by producing obedient hearts. Be glorified in this time, and sanctify this time for that, for that purpose, and to the end that we may be equipped and encouraged in your word, we pray this in Christ's name, Amen. We're looking today at the seven of seven citations from the New Testament, and ultimately the goal of the author in this first chapter of Hebrews is to prove to us that Jesus is superior to the angels. And for us, that may not seem like necessarily all that lawful of a goal, because you are here, not because you worship angels because you worship Jesus. So to us, that argument seems romantic uh, or maybe juvenile, but to the first century the Jews who had come out of the system in which angels were exalted, in which their Messiah had been crucified on a Roman cross under a curse, they needed to be deb- have it shown to them that their Messiah was greater than any of the angels. And so that's the argument of this first chapter of Hebrews, that Jesus has inherited a more excellent name than they, as he says in verse 4, He's become much better than the angels, having been exalted to the Father's right hand. And so these seven citations that we have from the Old Testament come in verses 5 through verse 13, and we're finishing up chapter 1 this morning with verses 13 and 14. There is somewhat of an overlapping theme between the the first section of chapter 1 and the second section of chapter 1, uh, we've noticed that chapter 1 is divided into primarily two parts. The first part, verses 1 to 4, lists seven glories of Christ. He's the creator of everything, the heir of everything, the exact representation of God's nature, the radiance of the divine being. He made purification of sins. He sat down at the Father's right hand. Those are the seven glories in the verse, first four verses. Then the, the rest of the chapter, the second part, he is citing these Old Testament passages, seven of them, one, all but one of them are from the Psalms, in order to show that the things that he has said about Jesus are indeed true. In fact, this is what the Old Testament taught that they were to expect in the Messiah, to so the Jews. And so these seven birth, these seven citations from the Old Testament that come from the book of Psalms are all intended to show us that indeed this Messiah is as glorious as he has told us in the first four verses. And then there is an overlapping theme in that both of those two first sections kind of reach their climax at the very end. That is, that in verse 4, I should say in verse 3, the offer ends with the exaltation and the majesty of the Son at the Father's right hand. Having made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. And as he ends that first section with that glorious truth, Messiah, who has been raised from the dead, after he died made purifications of sins, he sat down at the Father's right hand. Now, in the seven section citations from the Old Testament, they end the same way. Look at verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies and put them over your feet"? He ends the seven citations with the same way that he ends that list of seven glorious Christ. He is glorious, so glorious that he ends the statement with this: He is set down at the right hand of the Majesty of God. Then he gives us seven citations from the Old Testament, and he ends with that citation from Psalm 110 about the Messiah sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the seventh and final citation from the Old Testament is from the 110th Psalms we read at the beginning, and you're going to need to turn back there now, and keep your finger here at Hebrews chapter 1, because what we've been doing is going back to the Old Testament passage to to look at the Old Testament passage and its context and see what the author is saying there and then bringing that into the book of Hebrews. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. And then we'll be returning to Hebrews chapter one. 110 Psalm. It is difficult to overstate the importance of Psalm 110 to not just the, new te- not just the book of Hebrews, but also to the entire New Testament. Psalm 110, if you're interested in keeping track of things like this, is the most quoted Psalm in all the New Testament. In fact, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted verse of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Now, if you had asked me several weeks ago, how many times is Psalm 110 quoted in the New Testament, what would have been your guess to that? You probably would have read it. The Lord says, To my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies visible for your feet. You might have said, Well, Obviously, that's in Hebrews chapter 1. I know that because we've read it every week for the last 14 weeks. So I know that it's there, but where else would it be? And you might think, I remember a passage in the Gospels maybe where Jesus quoted this, so probably two or 3 What won't your guess be? You Let's go on the upper side and say maybe 10 times in the New Testament you might the this quoted. 23. 23 times in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1 is quoted. That is that 11 out of 27 books in the New Testament, Quote this psalm. Quote verse one. Seven of the nine New Testament authors. Quote verse one. You think this is significant? I would suggest that if you're going to memorize a psalm sometime in your future, that you would memorize Psalm 110. It is obviously on the mind of the New Testament authors. In fact, the second, the second place verse is not even a distant second to this. The second place verse is only mentioned seven different places in the New Testament. That is the Psalm 110 verse one. It's Quoted three times more frequently than the next most quoted verse in the Old Testament, which is Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Three times more, Psalm 110, verse 1 is quoted. And this is not the only, this is not the only quotation from Psalm 110 that we find in the New Testament. You find it also in the book of Hebrews. Um, Psalm 110, verse 4 is quoted in the book of Hebrews. The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, why is it the New Testament authors quoted so frequently from the Book of, uh, from Psalm 110? Particularly verse 1. 23 different citations. You know why it is? The Jewish Messiah having died on a cross under the Roman authority at the hands of Gentiles under the apparent curse of God, which he was under the curse of God, but that was visible to all who looked on him. Messiah, having died under the curse of God, the message of the apostles was, yes, he died under the curse of God, but God has accepted that sacrifice and vindicated him by raising him from the dead and declaring him, that very one who died under a curse, to be the son of God and has exalted that one to the very right hand of God and the majesty on high. That's the central message of the New Testament. The New Testament is almost an explanation of Psalm 110, that the Messiah had to come and to die, and having died, he has been raised, and having been raised, he is seated at the Father's right hand. Now, when we speak of the message of the Gospel, and we describe the Gospel to people, we speak in terms of God dying for sinners, of Christ dying for sinners. The Son came and he bore our penalty, and He bore the wrath that we are due, and we tell people what the response to that is, that it is repentance and faith. But very often, far too often, we kind of give the resurrection something of a short script. In that, right? The emphasis is always on God dying for sinners. But how often do we tell the rest of that tale and remind people that God has exalted him to the Father's right hand? That's that's so integral to the gospel, you cannot separate it. In fact, you see it in the preaching of the apostles, you see it in the book of Acts, Peter on the day of Pentecost. This Messiah, whom you crucified, God raised again and exalted him to his right hand. That's part of the message of the gospel. And yet, we tend to give that kind of a, we kind of short that out, we tend to not mention that. And I think it is to our own detriment but we don't spend more time thinking about that ourselves as Christians. The Savior that we serve and the God that we serve sits, not as it were, at the head of the table in heaven. He sits at that position of preeminence and power and majesty and glory. That is the message that we proclaim. And then we demand of men you must bow the knee to him because this one who sits in this exalted position is coming back, to get, uh, coming back again to judge the living and the dead central to the message of the New Testament. So, Psalm 110, verse 1, 23 times in the New Testament, most quoted verse in all of the New Testament. The second one's in the book of Leviticus. Hold on a second, weren't we supposed to ignore all the stuff in Leviticus? All the condemnations about it. all the condemnations about alternative lifestyles and the holiness code? All the stuff we're supposed to, Christians were supposed to just pitch that out the door, right? No, that's the, that's the second most frequently cited passage in the New Testament, Leviticus 19 and 18. And then Psalm 110, 10 Verse 4, the author in Hebrews spends chapter 5, 6, and 7 explaining that one verse. The Lord has sworn you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we will get to who Melchizedek was and what his function was and what this Melchizedekian priesthood is. Uh, it can be said that the book of Hebrews is an exposition of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1 is cited in Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 13, chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter, Psalm 110, verse 4, about being a priest forever according to Melchizedek, is cited in Hebrews 5, 6, 5, 10, 6, 20, 7, verse 11, 7, verse 17, and 7, verse 21. Three chapters the author spends explaining the Melchizedekian priesthood, and several chapters referring to the fact that Christ is the exalted Son of God. Those two themes of Book Hebrews. He is the exalted Son, and he is our high priest. Those two things go together. That's the, that's the gospel. That the one who is the exalted Son is also our high priest. And so those two things go together. The book of Hebrews has been said as an exposition or explanation of all of Psalm 110. So it behooves us to go into it. Before we jump into the Psalm, though. I want you to remember how it is that Jesus quotes this psalm because Jesus quotes this psalm in fact he quotes it in two different ways the first way that Jesus quoted Psalm 110 verse 1 was to prove that the Messiah was divine. We read this in Matthew chapter 22 verse 41 now while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them a question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, son David? He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. He silenced their questions with questions. In fact, Matthew chapter 22 is kind of an interesting context because it says in the beginning of Matthew chapter 22 that the Pharisees and the scribes were conspiring together how to trip him up and, and catch him in the answer to a question. So they came in and asked Jesus three very difficult questions. All of which were intended to trip him up, because so they figured, if we could get him to say something that the crowds would like, or the Caesar would like, surely we could get one of them to be willing to kill him. And so they asked Jesus, is it lawful pay a full tax to Caesar? Remember that question? Jesus said, take out a point whose image is on, he answers the question with a question, whose image is on the point, and they answered that, render to Caesar things that are Caesar, got the things that that are God. <laughs> Foiled again. So like the littler, they come back with another question will really be this, Jesus. And the second question is a woman has a, marries a man and he has seven brothers and he dies. You remember that question? And the woman goes through all seven of these brothers, eventually having married all seven, and the seventh one dies in the resurrection. Whose wife will she be? And they were trying to get Jesus to, to say he will be she will be the husband of the first one or the second one or the seventh. They wanted to show that the whole idea of resurrection was nonsensical and ludicrous. And they could get him to make a statement on the resurrection one way or the other. They could alienate either the Pharisees if he gave a Sadducean type answer, or they would alienate the Sadducees if he gave a Pharisee type answer. And so Jesus, Jesus gave him a great answer and boiled again. So they asked him the third question. And the third question was what is the greatest commandment? Jesus had to distill all the Old Testament down into the greatest commandment of the Lord your God, Father, your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second thing. First ones who love God with all your hearts and minds right? And they couldn't trip him up there. And then Jesus spins the table on them and says, I'll ask you a question. The Messiah. Whose son is he? Oh, the son of David. Any Jew can answer that. The Messiah is going to be the son of David. Of the descendant of David. Okay, well, if the Messiah is David's son, how then does David call his son Lord? Can you answer that? They couldn't answer that. They didn't want to answer that. You know why they didn't want to answer that? Because if they admit that the Messiah is David's Lord, then they admit the Messiah is the Son of God. And if they admit that the Messiah is the Son of God, they have somebody in their presence who they knew was a son and a descendant of David. And they knew he claimed to be the Son of God, the Lord. And he was doing miracles like raising the dead and casting out demons that demonstrated his claims were true. So if they admit that the Messiah is the Lord, then they have somebody who checks every box, and then they're without excuse for rejecting. So, so they just shut down and stop asking, answering any questions. that day before they didn't ask another question, because he just he made them look like complete fools. Every time the Pharisees and Sadducees tried to engage Jesus, he made them look like fools. And so that's the first way that Jesus uses that question: give them stop citation in the Psalms. David calls it Lord. How's that possible? You call Lord. Jesus cited the passage to show that he was God. The second way Jesus cited the passage is to describe his return in glory. We come to that Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. Jesus said to him, um, Oh, let me set the context where this. this is his trial before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas said, I adjure you, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Where they ask him, Are you the Messiah and are you divine? So Jesus said in verse 64, Matthew 26, You said it yourself, Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus combined two quotations: One from Psalm 110, verse 1. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He brought both of those passages together to say, yes, I am the divine one who sits at the Father's right hand. You said it yourself, the question was, are you the Son of God? In other words, are you claiming to be divine? And Jesus said, yes, and he quoted Psalm 110 to show it, to prove that, that he was the one who sits, who was going to sit at the Father's right hand, and then he was going to come back into the clouds of glory. So that's how Jesus quoted the psalm. Now let's take a look at the psalm itself. It's the psalm of David, which uh, Jesus obviously affirmed that, and it's right there in the introduction, and it's only seven verses, so we'll work our way through it. He seems to be in two separate, uh, two separate parts to the psalm, verses 1-3, which describe this reigning king, verses 4-7, through which speak in some way of the priesthood of Jesus. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, and push them with your feet. What you have here in verse 1 is the same thing that we've seen in other citations from Hebrews 1 of the psalms, where we have an individual who is called the Lord speaking to another individual who is called the Lord. And one Lord is promising something to the other Lord. It's not that we have two separate gods that are being described, but we have one God in two separate persons who are related to one another as Father and as Son. The Messiah is the Lord who is promised by the Father that He is going to send the Messiah at the Father's right hand. So He gives to the other, the second Lord, the second person, who is also the Lord, He gives him a position of power and honor. As we said before, if you don't have a solid or a, a concise and an able Trinitarian theology in your mind, passages like this make no sense. How can you have two Lords? Well, it's because we have one God, but we have two separate and the same persons. We're able to have a conversation with one another, and here we have the Father saying something to the Son, namely, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies to blissful for your feet." And he is going to be exalted to the Father's right hand, and then there's going to come a point in time when his enemies will be made in footstool. The imagery of a footstool comes from, uh, in ancient times, a king, when he had conquered a people or a city. He would bring out the leaders of that city, and they would bow down before him, and he would put his foot upon the neck of the conquered king. And this showed subjection, showed power, authority, control, and he was the victor, and somebody else was the, uh, the, the conquered spoil. And that's the imagery here. Christ is going to sit in the Father's right hand and so all of his enemies be made a footstool, be brought into subjection under his feet. This is quoted again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where the same idea uh, is given where Christ is seated at the Father's right hand and everything is brought into subjection to him. And once everything is brought into subjection to him, as a work of the Father through the Son in bringing everything into subjection to him, the Son turns around and hands all of that as a gift back to the Father. And he is all in all. So we have the first Corinthians 15. So, when and how will the Son of Man bring all of his enemies into subjection under his feet? There are two ways of viewing this, essentially. One of them is called post millennialism. I'm just going to briefly describe this for a moment. The post millennial view of how this is going to happen is that through the preaching of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom and the spread of the word of God and the Christianization of society, culture, and institution. Eventually, the entire world is Christianized to the point where Christ is ruling here, physically. Kind of that's the post-millennial view. It is a slow, uh, gradual process by which everything is, gets better and better and better, and eventually we just go right into eternity. The, the pre view is that this subjugation is a sudden, cataclysmic, uh, violent destruction of all enemies, foreign and domestic of all things that raise themselves up against God's wills. Two totally different views of how everything is going to be made subject to it. Either gradually or suddenly and cataclysmically. I favor the suddenly and cataclysmically view because that seems to be exactly what the Old Testament describes. The Old Testament describes the establishment of this kingdom in terms like you will rule the with broad iron, you will shatter nations, you will shatter kings, you will destroy them, you will, you will destroy your enemies. That's the language that is used. It's not describing a mere earthly king or a future for Israel that was was, uh, that was passed to us. This describing the coming of that kingdom as a cataclysmic event. And this rule will be established, verse 1 promises, as the first Lord makes and brings everything through the operation of the second person who is Lord, brings everything under his feet. Verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So again, David's describing two lords. The Lord, the Father, is going to say to you, that one who is given the position of the right hand, the Son, rule in the midst of your enemies, stretch forth your scepter in Zion. So we're talking about a rule in Zion, which then would be Jerusalem. He's going to stretch forth the scepter and rule in the midst of his enemies. Verse 3, in some way, the people of God and the saints of God will have something to do with it. pressure in the pressure of and his people. Verse 3 says, your people will volunteer freely of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn your youth are to you as the dew and that seems to picture the idea that, 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 that the people of god are fresh like dew in the morning there is some sense in which when the kingdom is established in this physical sense on zion that the people of god are there from the very beginning having something to do with the installation and institution of this divine kingdom verse 4 the lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Get into what that means in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 of Hebrews. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. Notice the presence of God. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men of a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This describes a cataclysmic judgment upon the world. Not a slow gradual takeover of everything. The establishment of this king will be a sudden and cataclysmic event. Be a sudden and destructive event. So Daniel pictures in the book of Daniel, he says it was a a statue that it saw the peat of clay mixed with iron, and the stone that is cut out of the mountain, the Amians comes in, and crushes that statue, and grinds its powder, and then that stone grows to kill the entire earth. It's the destruction of those nations, which results in the kingdom of Christ killing the entire earth. So that's Psalm 110, that's what's being described there. Notice verse 4 describes one person as being a priest, and verse 1 describes this person as being a king, a ruler, who sits at the Father's right hand. A king, a priest. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, there are other passages that describe the Messiah in terms of those two offices. When we think of Christ, sometimes we think of the threefold opposite. The prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet was one who communicated the word God's men. A priest was one who offered sacrifices on behalf of men to God, and a king was one who ruled over men on behalf of God. All three of those are mediatorial offices. They some, in some way stand between God and men to either offer words or bring revelation or rule in the midst of people on behalf of God or on behalf of men. And they were mediatorial offices, mediating between God's people and God Himself. When we look at the New Testament, we see that Christ fulfills all three of those rules. He is prophet, his priest, and his king. In the Old Testament, there were passages described the Messiah as being both a priest and a king, and a prophet as well. Then around 18 and 18, God said, I'll raise up for you a prophet, my people. And so the Messiah was expected to be one to and spoke the words of God. But then you have, the referred to as a priest and a king as well. I'll give you an example of that, Zechariah 6, verses 12 through 13. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, branch was that the title that was used in Jeremiah 23 verse 5 and 33 verse 15 to describe the Messiah. That it would come from David's line. He would be a branch off of David's line. So Zechariah here refers to one whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is and he will rebuild the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. The priestly function. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Zachariah looked forward to a day when there would be one who would be a priest and a king, and he would sit on a throne, and thus Zachariah says, there will be peace in those two offices. He will be a priest on his throne. So, Armisai is not just a king, he's king was also our high priest. The rest of the Psalm, verses 5 and 6, describe that cataclysmic event. Psalm 21, verses 8 9 it says, Your hand will find out all your enemies, your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven at the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Revelation 19 describes this. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Probably a reference to what was described earlier where it says, Your your young ones or your youth, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your house. are coming back with him when he comes. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that if, with it he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress press of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in mid-heaven. Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and then and slaves great and small, and I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on the horse of the army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet performed perform the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire and burned from the prince's home, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Sound like a gradual peace to take over the world to you? does not sound like that to people. This is our God when He returns. It's not Jesus meek and mild. It's not Jesus bouncing children on His knee. This is Jesus coming back to destroy His enemies, all those who were raised up against Him. And that's the message that we preach. Then we say to people, you must submit to this. You must bow the knees to Him and face His wrath. That's the message of the Gospel. Because He is exalted, <coughs> You must deal with him as a risen and crucified Savior. And if you do not deal with him as a risen and crucified Savior, you will face the one who sits at God's right hand. In that position of all power and glory and majesty and strength and authority, and it will not be pretty on that. But he comes back to judge. So he's going to judge. He's not coming back to deal with sin, again him, him. And the wicked of this world, they hate that picture of Jesus. They you know, like, you don't know, like it. You they don't like it? Because they want the Jesus that overwins you. Jesus who's fine with everybody all the time, under all circumstances. Just make him your own personal Jesus. Have him to be your own. Make him whatever you want to be. Whatever you envision him to be. That's what the world wants. That's not what the world is going to get. They kick against this one who in verse 7, it says, He will drink from the brook by the wayside, and lift up his head, he is the exalted one. And if drinking by the brook on the wayside and lifting up his head is the picture of a king who in the midst of his conquering, in the midst of his glory, bends down to be refreshed from the brook, and he lifts up his head, and he is exalted in his position, his status, and his glory, his position, prominence, that he has. That's what Psalm 110 comes. So now, with all of that in mind, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 1. We have the exalted 1.10, a picture of a priestly king, one who is a priest, who sits upon his throne, at the Father's right hand. And the point of Hebrews is that this is something that is said and given to no angel. Verse 13, which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies? Put for your feet. The answer to that question is none. To no angels has this ever been said. No angel has ever been given that position, but the Son has been given that position. And so the contrast here in Hebrews 1 is between the angels and the sun. And so here's our outline. After that big, long introduction, here's the outline. Fortunately, the first point of this outline is not going to take long. Actually, none of the rest of this is going to take long, because we've already set up all the context. But here's the outline. The contrast is this. We have in verse 13 the sovereignty of the sun, and we have in verse 14 the service of the spirits. That's the contrast. The sun reigns. The spirits serve him. The sun is exalted. The Spirit's doom is working. They do as as ministering and serving spirits. So look first at the position that Jesus has in verse 13. This is something that no angel enjoys, the privilege of sitting at the right hand of God until all of his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. It, it's, it's not surprising, and it should be encouraging to us, that the author here quotes from a psalm that has to do with the establishment of this king and the triumph of his kingdom and his truth. Because we've seen all the way through these citations that there is a divine, a divine and kingly element to all of these. If you show up here Sunday after Sunday and think yourself, that sounds like Jim is speaking a lot about this coming kingdom and this king and his rule and his authority. It's because I am because this is behind all of these psalms that the psalmist is quoting from here. That's the background for all of it. He's quoting from psalms that are looking forward to the establishment of this Messiah and his kingdom. That is our hope and our expectation. So the son is sovereign. He is the creator of all things. He is the heir of all things. He will rule the nations. He has given the nations as his inheritance. He sets over all them, He shatters the kings. He rules with a rod of iron. He rules in truth and righteousness. And we are waiting for that time until the God, at his own timing and in his own way, brings everything into subjection under his kingdom. Because he is the one who, uh, under whose feet, all things are placed. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, The last time you get to be defeated is one. It's death. It's the last time, it's the last time you get be defeated. Once death is defeated, death is no more. No more people to be born, no more people to die. And death is no more than every enemy is under his feet. And that, that kingdom is established, and he will rule in the midst of it. He will rule with us, his people. as what well we look forward to. Now look at the serving spirits in verse 14. In contrast to the Son, who is sovereign and who rules from the Father's right hand, we have the spirits who are ministering servants. Verse 14 are they not all ministering spirits? That is, are they not the, the angels? Are not all of them ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who bear in salvation? Now, if all of the angels are ministering and serving spirits, and Jesus is not a ministering and serving spirit, then Jesus is not what? Angel. That's the point. All of the angels have this classification. They are ministering and serving spirits. Now, in chapter 1, verse 7, we uh, we looked at the theology of angels. Look at verse 7 again. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers they flame of fire. And here in verse 14, he returns to this idea that the ministers serve the purpose, the, the, the angels serve the purpose of God in ministering and doing all of his bidding. They faithfully serve him, rendering service. But look at verse 14 to whom they render service. They render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Who's that? That's us. Now, I wish the author of Hebrews, at this point by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had paused for just a moment and said, here are all the ways that the angels serve God's people. That would have been great. But the author of Hebrews doesn't do that, does he? He just simply says that one of the things that the angels do, they exist to serve us. Let that sink in for just a moment. The angels, even right now, in some way, are serving us. God doesn't need the angels to accomplish his bidding. But God uses the angels to serve This he likes those who will inherit salvation. Now, we already have salvation in terms of the present possession, but the full reality of what awaits us, we have yet to inherit. So we are those who are waiting to inherit the full promise of all the salvation has brought to us. We are those waiting to inherit that salvation. The angels are ministering service service, sent out to render service to us. Now, how does this happen? In what way do angels do our bidding? Uh, there are a number of uh, uh, examples of this in the Old Testament. You see the, you see angels used by God in defending the nation of Israel in times of danger or trouble. Remember Elijah saw all of the angels and the chariots around him, and he, and he allowed Elisha to see that same picture. In some way, the angels of God were involved there in protecting the nation. There was an angel who delivered Peter from prison. There was an angel who delivered Lot from Sodom. Angels have been used in protecting and providing for God's people throughout church history or sorry, uh, Old Testament history, in what way do they do this today? Are they involved in our lives today? I have no doubt that angels are involved in some way in our lives today. This intrigues people, I think, and rightly so, because we're curious to know, have I ever encountered an angel, or seen an angel, or entertained an angel unaware? as Hebrews 13, verse 8 says, or been involved with one? And, And to that, I would just say, I don't know. I think it's dangerous to, to speculate as to when and where we may have called angels. I think it's best to stay away from that entirely. Now, the world looks at a statement like what I just made. Yes, I think believers encounter angels. And the world looks at that and says, that's crazy talk. Right? If I stood up here in front of a bunch of people and said, look, I believe in extra-dimensional extra, ultra, uh, uh, extra dimensional beings from another world who visit us. And they would say, oh yeah, you believe in UFOs? Totally believe in talking more. I said, "No, I believe in angels." Oh, you're crazy now. You're talking of that Bible book thing, right? If you tell me you believe in UFOs, that's believable. They want to hear more about that. You tell me you believe in angels. All of a sudden, you're losing. Well, I believe in angels, and I believe that we do have encounters with angels. How often? How frequently? That I don't know. I think it's probably. This will help me on down, now. I think it's probably more frequently than some people think, and less frequently than other people think. Somewhere <laughs> in the some middle. How frequently we encounter angels? In 45 years of living on this earth, I don't know of a single instance that I can say that I ever think I have ever encountered an angel. I don't think it has anything to do with lack of piety or lack of faith or lack of biblical maturity or understanding or, or its being in touch with God or anything like that. I just, As a general rule, I try not to put myself in places where I need the help of angels. But I don't think in 45 years I've ever encountered an angel. Now, I may have, but I don't, I don't know that I have. Now, after we we talk in after verse 7, when I talk about theology of angels, somebody came up, and I'm not going to give their name because uh, that's for them to, to disclose, but somebody came up and talked about an incident when they believed that they were rescued by, or should say they believed they were rescued by an angel, they were rescued in a situation from imminent death, and it was one of those situations where it was just, it was odd, it was weird, there was no really natural explanation for why this individual was there, or why this person was doing what they were doing. Was that an angel? It's very possible. You see, even this person who shared that with me understands you we can't build a theology on it. As Christians, that's what we have to say. We have to be careful that we don't build our theology on pop cultural references to angels or on experiences that we have. Experience is just an experience. That's all it is. We have to be careful with theologies that are built on other people's experiences. I knew a missionary who knew this person who was in this situation where this thing happened, or at least I think he heard of this thing happening to some other missionary who was in another situation. And therefore, angels are next wives we have to be careful not to do that. We, we can build our theology of angels from Scripture, and what do we know? Angels serve the purpose of ministering to those of us who will inherit salvation in this life. Maybe we will get to heaven and find out that they were all around us doing things like crazy just to keep us alive. And maybe we'll get to heaven and find out that on one or two occasions, they stepped in and we encountered them. And we thought it was so-and-so, and it turns out it was an angel. But until we get to heaven, we can't know anything other than what the author of Hebrews says here. That is, that our salvation, because of our salvation, because we are God's people, angels will serve us. And here's what I think is magnificent. I believe that this will be the case, and it is the case, not just now, but in the kingdom as well. You see, right now we are created a little lower than the angels. We are lower, a lower class of beings, and yet they serve us. We're lower beings than they are because of our fallenness, because of our humiliation because we're just simply not as strong, wise, quick, smart as they are. We're a lower class of being in our holiness than they are. What will we be in the kingdom when we are glorified and sin is no more and we are made just like Christ? We won't be divine. But I think it would be safe to say that even in that situation, we will probably be elevated to be a higher class of beings in our glorification than angels. That's my sanctified speculation on the subject But what I do know is that now and forever in the kingdom, angels exist to serve God's people. When we share the glory of the kingdom with Christ our Lord, and we are forever in glorified bodies, ruling and reigning and enjoying His presence, the angels will serve us. That is the And they will serve us not because we are worthy to be served, but because they serve the one who has redeemed us and allowed us to share His glory. That's what our salvation has brought us. We who were unworthy of any good and any grace, who were sinners and rebels, who deserved his wrath, deserved his judgment, deserved his justice, deserved an eternal health, Christ stepped down on his throne to take upon himself the human body and a little perfect life and to die in our place so that he might lift us to the heights of his throne, share that position of honor with us so that the angels who serve him now serve us, that we are his people. That is what our salvation has purchased for us. That eternal glory, that eternal position, that magnificent honor. The honor is all Christ's. It all belongs to him because of what he has done. We're going to take a moment and observe our communion together. Before we do, I just want you to to realize what it is that Christ has done for us to give us the kingdom. It's not just salvation. He has not just given us forgiveness of our sins. He has given to us the kingdom. He has given to us his own righteousness his own holiness, and he has promised to us, everything that the scripture has promised to us, he has promised to give us, he will most certainly do it, as he says that the Father's hand. There is nothing that he has promised for us that he will not deliver, he is able to deliver because of the position he has, seated at the right hand with the majesty of All of that purchased for us through his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. The one who was crucified on the Roman cross, God has vindicated and raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And it is the joy and the delight of his people, gladly bound to be before such a gracious king, knowing what he has done for us. If you are not a believer here this morning, and you have never trusted Christ for salvation, do not partake, it's not for you, it's for those who are believers in Christ... If you are a Christian who is living a rebellious and penitent lifestyle, I beg of you repent, or at least question the health and salvation of your own soul in such a condition. And you do not partake of communion unless you repent and turn from that sin, because the Bible promises that those who eat drink in an unworthy manner eat drink, and drink judgments themselves. So let's bow our heads together, we'll pray for the Lord to confess our sin, and we'll praise the Lord you are so merciful and kind to us to love us in eternity past even when you knew in the future every sin that we would commit and every violation of your law and then you sent your son to die in the stead of sinners so that we might have righteousness and forgiveness and, and be brought into a glorified relationship with you for all of eternity all of that has been purchased by us for us by your son and we thank you for that we thank you for that grace and that love which stooped down to bear our sin, and to give us the glory of the kingdom that is to come. We have this hope because of what Christ has done, and we thank you that you have taken away our sin as far as the east is from the west. You have forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, and future. We are justified and stand righteous because of Christ. We confess to you that iniquity that we live with. We we hate sin, and we pray that you would teach us and instruct us to hate it more and more each day. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that we may love you and obey you. Thank you for the blood atonement of Christ who paid our price in his own body on the tree, so that we we'll might be God to you and deemed forever. And thank you for that glory that awaits for Christ our King. Now, Lord, in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kooteny Church.